Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 8th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be presenting an interview with writer-director Mike Flanagan for the new film Dr. Sleep. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how's it going? It's going good. I'm very excited to share this interview. Uh, Mike Flanagan uh, is a really good talker as you'll soon hear yes certainly so i had a chance to to i guess be present for a brief q a that uh or maybe it wasn't so brief actually we played the full thing in its entirety on uh this very podcast um several months ago like when the uh teaser trailer for dr sleep debuted but you had a chance to actually interview him in person uh like a one-on-one scenario which is really great and um i loved listening to this conversation i just had a chance to check it out right before we started recording but uh why don't you set this up for people at home yeah if you listen to our water cooler podcast a few weeks ago i talked about how i went to estes park colorado for a dr sleep event and was able to interview mike flanagan at stanley hotel which is where stephen king thought up the shining so it was a very cool experience to interview him fireside in a, in a haunted hotel and what I learned shortly before the interview was that uh, he was staying in room 428, which is the cowboy room, a famously haunted room. And I had stayed in room 428 the night before he arrived. So when this interview begins, I'll, when I'm talking about the haunted room we both stayed in, uh, that's what we're referring to. I was breaking the ice by swapping ghost stories. <laughs> Nice. So uh, for people who may be wondering about spoilers, this first part of the conversation is going to be totally spoiler free. So I I mean, I guess maybe not totally like if you've seen the trailer, if you know the premise of the movie, it's going to be touching on, you know, plot points and stuff like that, that you can glean or or are clearly displayed within (laughs) within that marketing material. So if you want to, you know, go into this movie knowing absolutely nothing, then certainly go see the movie. It's in theaters right now and uh, and then come back and listen. But for everybody else, um, this is a spoiler free zone at least for a while we'll come back in and interrupt the conversation to uh, set up the spoiler talk a little bit later but uh, in the meantime enjoy Jacob's conversation with writer-director Mike Flanagan maybe a slightly odd question to start with but I was sure. told you were in room 428 yes all right I was in there the night before you, you arrived so oh. so I think the one time I'll be able to ask two people who have both recently been in a famously haunted room yeah so we got we got to have one for at least a moment 
Do you see anything or hear anything or feel anything odd while you're in the infamous cowboy room? Uh, I, I've not seen the cowboy. Um, and uh, the, the the biggest thing I noticed was the wind against uh, against the window and the wall that mm-hmm. night was loud. It was like like a fist punching the wall. Yeah. So uh, those noises were were startling. Yeah, I heard. But no, I didn't see anything. I heard movement above me where there is no place to further be movement. That's true. That's yeah. that's messed up. So, yeah, I've stayed in there before though. I stayed the first time I ever stayed here. I stayed in that room. Really? Yeah. So where do you look? I am a skeptic by nature, but I believe in ghosts. Where do right. you fall on this? I am a skeptic by nature, um, and I do not yet believe in ghosts. Oh really? But I'm wide open. Yeah. Uh, so, I think like any like any good skeptic, uh, my mind is wide open to the possibility, mm-hmm. um, and I actively seek it out. That's why I ask for rooms like that. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's part of the thrill of being a horror fan is wanting to find that stuff? Yeah. Uh, nothing would make me happier um, because. Even if I had a really scary experience, to be able to to say with certainty mm-hmm. that there is something waiting for us on the other side of this life would be so cool. Yeah, I'd love to know that. Cool. You know, I don't know if for me it doesn't feel knowable, and and I haven't I haven't seen it. Yeah. But I know other people uh, claim to to have, and and uh, who am I to who am I to argue <laughs> with that? Interestingly, uh, Doctor Sleep also has a, a similar viewpoint about uh, life goes on, and yes. and in the world of Doctor Sleep and, and, and lots of Stephen King stories, uh, being a ghost or living living beyond isn't necessarily a curse. It's, you're there to watch and help the people you love. Yes. So uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, finding the optimism in your heart? Because I feel like you, like Stephen King, are an optimist at heart, even even as dark as you get. I feel like you believe people will persevere. Yes, I do. Uh, I I. I um... I didn't always used to be this way either, and it's funny. I look back at some of my early work, and um, I, when I watch Absentia, for example, mm. I'm like, "Wow, that's bleak." Like, Oculus is bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, that optimism has has kind of grown in me as I've gotten older, and I think it, it's grown in me because I had children, mm-hmm. and I want to be optimistic for them. I want yeah. the world to be okay for them, um, and it's because uh, I. I I met my wife, and, and kind of as, as my life congealed into a really kind of positive thing, for the first time, I, I, I really I wanted I wanted to believe in those things. I, I wanted to have faith in, in existence and the universe and purpose and justice and you know I, I want to believe all of that. It's yeah. it's comforting for my kids. Uh, I do not like I, I can't imagine a world. Uh, them growing up in a world that is completely indifferent yeah. and hopeless, and yeah. I, that just that wrecks me. I can't, I can't let it happen. It's interesting because I feel like you also see that in Stephen King's work. His, his he grows more humanistic as his work goes on, and even yeah. the creator of The Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman, handed his comic book recently wrote an essay at the last issue saying that his original plan was to end it with humanity wiped out, but changed to an optimistic ending because over the years he had kids and realized he he could not bring himself to do that. Yeah. So. I think do you agree with me? I say there's a wisdom in in growing older with horror like that. Yeah, I think so. I agree with that uh, completely. Um, you know, I I think when you look at what horror is meant to do, I I think it's it's a it's a safe space for us to entertain the things that scare us the most. Mm-hmm. Um, as a kid, I used to look at it as a chance to be brave in right. short bursts. Um, that making it through a scary movie or reading a scary book, mm-hmm. uh, when I didn't want to look at the screen anymore, I wanted to hide by my fingers or a pillow. Um, if I was able to push through that for five minutes, um, for 90 minutes, whatever it was, um, 
that was like exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think even our darkest expressions of the genre are really kind of a, a wonderful exercise for us to cathartically, they say, you know, when, you, when you're really terrified of something happening, you know, it's exposure therapy. Um, experience it, realize that it, you know, it isn't the end of the world. Yeah. That, that there's, see how how you react to it. See who you really are on the other side of an experience like that. Because uh, there's nothing, you know, nothing flimsier than untested virtue. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think horror is optimistic because it, it basically says, for as dark as this is, as scary as it is, mm-hmm. um, it's going to end. Yeah. You know, and you'll still be here as the viewer, as the reader. You know, you yeah. carry on. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's incredible. Yeah, you've spoken before about um, how childhood trauma and its effects is, is like hard you because uh, on a set visit last year because you never you had a good childhood so that scares you. Yeah. Um, but my real question, the, the, the pressing question is, why are you so afraid of hand trauma? Because if you've got Stephen Gerald's <laughs> game, my hands hurt so yeah. much. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's become a running gag now. Um, I had so. Uh, I, I have a phobia of fingernail injuries. Mm-hmm. It's the most kind of uncomfortable thing I can imagine. And in Oculus, we have a scene where, where Rory pulls off his thumbnail. Yes, and, okay, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I still haven't been able to watch the whole thing. I can't. Um, it was a reshoot. It was a, a last-minute addition to the movie. Mm-hmm. I was against it because I'm so uncomfortable with it, and I can't look at it. Um, but with Hush, uh, Hush was kind of, in, in a lot of ways, it was me feeling like I was never going to be able to make Gerald's game, mm-hmm. um, kind of riffing on a lot of things that were yeah. in that book. And, you know, the crushing hand injury in that was just, it felt right for that story. It was also kind of Gerald's gamey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have a vendetta against hands. Um, <laughs> but then with Gerald's game, it was like, okay, now it's starting to feel like a vendetta. And then with haunting and Henry stuck his hand in the fan, he was like, you're starting to do this on purpose, aren't you? <laughs> um, and in Dr. Sleep, that's what happens uh, to her hand in the book. Like, mm-hmm. it, it gets pretty mangled. But I was like, here we go again. Like, at this point, it's just becoming a dare. Yeah. Like, how can I get a really gruesome hand injury in there? Yeah. fuck hands. Like, what do, they, what do they do for anyone? Nothing. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of fun. It's like the strength and, and, and a gore guy that is... <sighs> We don't know what it's like to have our head ripped off by a mass killer. We've all stubbed our finger. We've all yeah. we all have a hangnail. We all know what our hands feel like, right? Yeah, it's like when you pull yeah. that hangnail just a little too far and yeah. a tiny little tear happens. Mm-hmm. Like we all know how that feels. And it because we use our hands for so much of our lives, mm-hmm. you know, an injury to those, it's it, it it's it's really frightening to me. Yeah. It's eyes and hands for me. Yeah. Like having any impediment to sight or being able to manipulate things. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it scares me to death. When we bumped each other on the tram last night, I said the same thing to you here, but I want to get it on my recorder because it, yeah. it was good, it is that Dr. Sleep, uh, by returning to many of the ideas in the imagery of Stephen King's original novel, The Shining, in addition to being a sequel to Kubrick's film, feels like a, a direct response to it, saying Kubrick's worldview is we're doomed, and Dr. Sleep's worldview is no, we're not. So I want to talk about the process of staying true to Kubrick. We're also, you know, putting Stephen King's proper vision out there in front of millions of people for the first time. Yeah, and that was one of the things that was so kind of exciting to me about this, was being able to to do the ending of The Shining, you know, to do the, the ending of, of the novel. Um, but I think in in that, I don't know if I'd put it all on Kubrick in, in, to say that he's got this kind of we're all doomed. I don't know that I can speak to his, his worldview that, mm-hmm. that definitively. 
What I will say, though, is that um, The Shining is, is very much about addiction, mm-hmm. which is a doom. You know, uh, it's about annihilation mm-hmm. and the destruction of a family, how, how addiction can destroy an individual and how that destruction can reach out and destroy others around it. Um, and I think that's what King was writing about the most. Yeah. I don't know that, um, you know, he always, he always had this note of redemption and sacrifice to it. He had this wish for how it would go. Right. And Kubrick was more interested in the madness. He was more interested in the destruction for sure. Um, but I think Dr. Sleep, written by the same author, but you know, with decades of sobriety under his belt. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sleep is about recovery um, in the way that addiction feels like doom and annihilation. Mm-hmm. Recovery is rebirth and recovery is, you know, um, is salvation in a way. Um, uh, so I, th- I think there are two sides of the same coin in these stories. Yeah. And, and I think Kubrick, you know, gravitated very naturally toward certain notes of, of, of that story. Um, and clearly Stephen King, I think, desperately wanted the redemption yeah. because he needed it for himself and he needed it for his own family. And when that wasn't included in the movie, I think he took that personally. And yeah. I understand why he would. Yeah. Um, but I think that's why he's so passionate about it. But to, to finally kind of be able to give him that in this story, it, it, it was, uh, you know, it was an honor to be able to do that. Yeah. I hope, though, that we're also able to honor um, Stanley Kubrick and the masterpiece of cinema that he made. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as 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 many liberties as he took with it, he made a film that has profoundly formed me yeah. and has shaped the way I see cinema and will always. And so that was the, the hope, was not to say this was right or this was wrong or this is the real Shining or this yeah. isn't. It was more to try to pull all of that together and, and celebrate all of it. All right, so that's all we have for the spoiler-free section. But, Jacob, this conversation continues for a little while. What do people need to know about this? Uh, yes, I managed to have one more question. So as you get to hear, I I literally asked him for a word vomit because I wouldn't have a chance to uh, ask follow-ups. Uh, but this is <laughs> That's where a really spoilers... smart interview tactic, by the way, because I think he <laughs> talks for like way longer than he would for just a, a typical one last question, you know, oh, yeah, sort of for, situation. For sure, the WB rep was standing in the throwaway, just staring at us. <laughs> uh, but this is where spoilers begin, uh, and it's a pretty big scene uh, that is not featured in any trailers. So if you don't want any spoilers. This is your chance to back out. I'm going to count down from five. Then I'm going to start talking about spoilers. So it's five, four, three, two, one. Uh, hey, Ben, welcome to the Spoiler Zone. Hey, what's up? Uh, so if you're still listening but have not seen Doctor Sleep, I need to set up uh, something so you can understand what we're talking about, which is late in the film, uh, Dan Torrance with Ewan McGregor goes to the Overlook Hotel, which is abandoned, and uh, has a seat at the bar. And the bartender is the ghost of his father, Jack Torrance, played by Henry Thomas, uh, an actor who is probably so widely known as a kid from E.T., but has actually grown into a really interesting character actor who's been in most of Mike Flanagan's movies. And it's a really powerful scene where uh, growing up Dan Torrance literally grapples with the, with his ghosts and, and literally in the form of his dead father, who's offering him a drink. And, you know, his father was an alcoholic and Dan Torrance is a recovering alcoholic. And it's a kind of an astonishing scene uh, and probably the... The movie's third act is probably the weakest part of the film, but Ben, I think this scene is 
kind of amazing. It is. Uh, conceptually, for me, I found it um, a little distracting that they didn't use... This is one of those weird instances where I kind of wish they would have used a digitally de-aged version of a character, and I'm normally kind of against that in practice, but something about the way that this scene plays out, I, I wish that... I don't know, it, it took me out of the movie a little bit, while at the same time I can admit and acknowledge that it is... Um, maybe like the emotional crux of the entire thing. It's it's a very important, powerful scene, um, and, and it makes so much sense on the page. I'm just not. I think I think you and I are probably um, a little bit separated on whether or not the the effect works as intended. But uh, yeah. why why did you love the choice to not use you know a digital version of Jack Nicholson here? Well, as Flanagan will discuss in the in the interview here, uh, they. We're really worried about you know somebody playing Jack Nicholson, somebody playing somebody playing Jack Torrance. Uh, so I think by casting that actor who who's made up to look distinctly like how we remember Jack Nicholson looking in The Shining, instead of you know being exactly like that, they avoid the uncanny valley situation of you know of it being a digital hollow thing, and instead we're allowed to appreciate, okay, that's not Jack Nicholson, that's Jack Torrance. Uh, but as you'll hear in the clip, uh, it was definitely a conversation that they. They did talk about, you know, other options, and Trevor Macy, the producer, producer uh, in the separate interview I did, which you can also read on the site, uh, discusses how they did wonder, would it be possible to get Nicholas back and uh, de-age him? <laughs> wow. Uh, but that didn't come because Nicholson, Nicholson is firmly retired, and they decided to go with a real actor. But I think we should let Flanagan explain it from this point, don't you? Yes. All right. So here's the remainder of your conversation with Mike Flanagan. This is one that I'll wait to put up after the movie's out, so I won't spoil anybody. I need to talk about the uh, Jack Torrance scene. Yeah. The best scene in the movie for my money. Um, oh, thank you. I'm yeah. so glad you feel that way. Uh, I, want to, I, just, I want to hear everything about about casting Henry Thomas, about um, trying to make sure he was Jack Torrance and just enough Jack Nicholson, but without being a parody. I, yeah. I, I need to just give me the word vomit about this one. You got it. <laughs> All right. Um, so this was the scene that convinced Stephen King to let us go back to the Overlook. Um, it, it was That was my whole pitch. Uh, I said, I want to go back to the Overlook. He said, no, I don't want to go back to the Overlook. I did that very intentionally. And I said, but imagine if you will. <laughs> Dan Torrance, walking through the Overlook alone, comes to the bar where a drink is waiting and the bartender is there and the bartender is his father and they talk. And that's what made him say, okay, I would like to see that. Um, that was the whole reason I wanted to make the film. Now, the, I knew immediately it was going to be the most controversial scene of the movie because of Jack Nicholson. Um, there was no interest uh, on my part in doing a digital Jack. I thought the technology would rip you out, and this is about Dan, it's not about Jack. Um, so it became about how do we best present Jack Torrance. Um, now we're using the Kubrick visual language and you know, everything else, so it's gotta be someone we recognize as Kubrick's Torrance. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean Jack Nicholson. Uh, the same way we approached Wendy and Dick Halloran and young Danny. The mission was try to cast actors who remind us of those performers, but who aren't doing a parody and who aren't doing an imitation. Henry is one of my best friends, um, one of my favorite actors to work with. Uh, and I called him up and I said, I have two parts I think you'd be perfect for in this. One is Billy, who's the best friend part. You can play it in your sleep. You've done it a million times. You know mm -hmm. that part. The other one, though, um, I just need you for one day, but holy shit, will you be under a microscope? Um, and I let him think about it, and he came back and he said, look, if you're, 
if you're stepping into Kubrick's shadow with all the pitfalls of that, I'll go with you and I'll step into Jack's and we'll sink or swim together. Uh, and so what we did with it was we decided that Kubrick had shown us how to handle Jack um, with Delbert Grady. Mm-hmm. He, he had made it clear that when the hotel digests you um, and you're part of the hotel, uh, Delbert always denied who he was. He was just a waiter, mm-hmm. you know, um, even as Jack Torrance called him out and said, you're Delbert Grady, you killed your family. He said, you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm just the help. And that was the key to Jack. Um, if, as long as we weren't ever trying to do here's Johnny and we weren't mm-hmm. ever trying to do Nicholson at his most Nicholson because no one's capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was Lloyd, you know, then that was the scene. And Henry's whole mission was, I don't play Jack, I play Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And now and again, here and there, for a sentence or two or a look or a moment, Jack comes out a little bit. Yeah. And that keeps us, it was the most respectful way we could think to do it. Yeah. Um, that way it kept us out of some crazy digital creation. It kept us out of trying to out Nicholson Nicholson, which is just a fool's errand. It kept us out of doing you know, some kind of you know, pale imitation um, or parody. And it let us do Jack Torrance in a way that was consistent with the mythology that Kubrick created, mm-hmm. consistent with the iconography of the look that Kubrick created, but was still Henry's character. And I know people are gonna have strong feelings about it. I do too. I walked down every possible road and this was the only one that felt appropriate. Um, and I love the scene. It's my favorite scene of the movie. And we knew, the three of us, Ewan and Henry and I, knew as we sat down to do it. It's like, you know, we're not going to please people with this. Yeah. People are going to love it or hate it. Let's do our best to make a scene about what a conversation between Dan and his dad. And in a sense, Dan and his own addiction. Mm-hmm. What that conversation would be. And if we do right by Dan, we'll do right by everything else. Um, so I hope we did. We'll you, see. You did. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Jacob, any closing thoughts before we go? Uh, if you want to read these interviews, uh, one from Mike Flanagan that you just heard is written up on the site right now in SlashFilm.com. A separate interview with uh, producer Trevor Macy, who's produced almost all of Mike Flanagan's uh, projects, is also on the site. And on Monday, I'm putting together their quotes about the big Jack Torrance scene together for a feature uh, that combines both their point of views on how that scene came to be. And then are you and Chris going to be writing a sort of a joint piece together about Dr. Sleep as well? Uh, Chris and I are collaborating, yes, on a uh, joint spoiler review. I can't promise when they'll be ready, but hopefully early next week. Awesome. All right, so look forward to that. And you can find more about Dr. Sleep at SlashFilm.com and linked inside today's show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure if you do that to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That does help us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you on Monday.